Hey everybody, Quinn here. Today we're replaying one of our most downloaded episodes ever, episode 66. So we can't just blow up asteroids then? Our guest for this episode was Professor K.T. Ramesh, who is, one, absolutely delightful, and two, uh, a gentleman who has possibly the coolest job in the world. Um, if you're like me, and you've always taken uh, the seminal feature-length film Armageddon as gospel, and why wouldn't you? Uh, Professor Ramesh is here to set the record straight on how we're going to have to deal with any rather large incoming projectiles. Um, it is an absolute blast, and if you're new here, I hope you uh, love this. Um, and I hope for everyone, it's a really great distraction to everything else that's going on uh, outside and inside your living room. Um, if you do enjoy this episode uh, for the first or the second or the fifth time, uh, Brian and I would love if you shared it with just one person today. Uh, word of mouth is the number one way shows grow. And you guys, our amazing community of shit givers and action takers, can help us fight for a better future for everyone just by smashing that share button in your podcast app of choice. So thank you to everyone. And now please enjoy our conversation with KT. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. Wow, that was very uh, Edward Moreau of you. Oh, Can you I do don't it know again? who that is. Deliver so it again. Good. The same way? Yeah, that was I really good. I don't know how. And I'm Brian Cole. I don't know. <laughs> Who's Edward Moreau? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. This is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, if it can kill us or turn us into the next... Next Iron Man. Oh. Uh, we're in. Our esteemed guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, screenwriters now, astronauts, I mean, even a reverend. Uh, and we work together for you towards action steps our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. This is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to uh, us on uh -huh. Twitter at importantnotimp mm -hmm. or email us at funtalk at mm -hmm. importantnotimportant.com. You can also join thousands of other smart, kind, caring, actionable people uh, and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, on this week's episode, Brian, we're talking about asteroids and let me tell you something. We were wrong. Wrong about asteroids. We were very wrong. Yeah. Wow. I feel like so much of my life has been a lie. Well, not not a lie. Well, a lie. We have to uh, go back. Our guest today is Professor K.T. Ramesh. Mm -hmm. He is now our hero, mm -hmm. and he will probably be yours too. For yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when you book a when you research a guest, mm -hmm. you go, "This could be fun," mm -hmm. and you book it, and you go, "This could be really fun," and then within thirty seconds of talking, man. Uh, and again, we love all of them. They're like our children. Oh, absolutely. Wouldn't you, I mean, clearly we have favorites, but the point is, uh, within 30 seconds, I was like, oh man, I think you said, you're like, I could do this all day. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a great one, guys. It's a good one. And again, your entire life is a lie. Uh, let's go talk to <laughs> KT. Our guest today is Professor KT Ramesh. And together we're going to ask, so apparently, Brian, we can't just blow up 
an asteroid. What? Uh, yeah. So, uh, KT, welcome. Glad to be here. We are very happy to have you. KT, let us know all, uh, let us all know who you are and what you do, sir. Okay, so let's see. I go by Professor KT Ramesh, but most, pe- most people just call me KT. Uh, I am a professor of mechanical engineering at Johns Hopkins University. I'm also the director of something called the Hopkins Extreme Materials Institute. And one of the things we study is planetary defense. I We usually don't go into too much mm-hmm. backstory, but uh, the director of the Extreme Materials Institute <laughs> is right. just too exciting. Yeah, that's uh, incredible. What, how does one uh, f- find that space, uh, much less run a lab in it? And, and <laughs> what, I mean, it just sounds, I, I have a six-year-old, or I, I have young children, uh, and two of which are boys, and I think they believe that they operate in the extreme materials <laughs> space. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, they do not. I'm but, pretty sure I do also. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, <laughs> but I would love to hear about, uh, briefly, how you got to where you are and, and what you do all day, basically. Sure. Well, let me start by telling you about the Institute. So the Please. Hopkins Extreme Materials Institute, we call it HEMI for short, H-E-M-I. Uh, it's basically an institute that's focused on trying to understand the critical problems that uh, we tend to have when you are exposed to an extreme environment. So um, our tagline is we are protecting people, structures, and the planet. So that's sort of our range of interest. Uh, This is incredible. (laughs) We're generally interested in those things that are really important, but really complicated. Okay. And, and so, you know, uh, actually a great example of this, uh, imagine what happens if you saw a really bright explosion, right? A really large explosion. Let's see a nuclear mm-hmm. blast. So what mm-hmm. happens as soon as the event occurs, uh, the light is so bright that you close your eyes, right? It's, you, you just, you're, you're, you're trying to avoid looking at it. And there's, there are right. a lot of events that are like that, where uh, the, the action is so intense that we look away or we close our eyes for it. And the nature of our institute is that's the place where we keep our eyes open. We've got instruments that really can look into the event, understand what happens during the event. So, so we are driven on those kinds of problems, the really intense problems where the energies are really high, a lot of things are happening in a very short time. We're trying to understand what happens on those very first few instants, and then from that to build up to the longer term. And I guess the way we see it is if we understand that very beginning of the event, then we can protect against it. So that's sort of the big picture. Wait, so are you the Avengers? I'm Sounds confused. Like you're the Avengers. <laughs> so, so, yeah, actually, uh, when we got started, uh, the superhero of choice was Captain America. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so the I idea mean, was uh, we're going to build Captain America's new shield, right? That's Oh, my God. <sighs> well, we might have to pay you a visit. Let's this, never this, stop talking. This, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm I'm excited. Okay, wow. uh, that's amazing. <laughs> All right, so so Dr. Ramesh, uh, just as a reminder to everyone else, and uh, uh, to let you know, what we do here is we uh, we're going to provide some context for uh, our topic and our question today, and then um, dig into some uh, action-oriented questions that uh, get to the core of of why we should give a shit about you and what you do, and uh, what everybody who's listening can can do about it. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Uh, so KT, we'd like to start with one important question and you did cheat by listening to the other episodes, uh-huh. so you might know what's coming. Uh, instead of saying, tell us your whole life story, uh, we like to ask, uh, KT, why are you, and I feel like you just answered this, why are you vital to the survival of the species? 
Yeah, I, I think that is the craziest question. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, man. You just told us what you do all day, and you literally... You, you said your motto is like basically pr- you're the Avengers. Yeah, it's Avengers Assemble. So I don't I don't want to hear that's a crazy question. Well, all right. So, so so let me put it this way: I I don't think I'm important to the survival of the species, but what the kinds of things we work on absolutely are. No question about it. I I love it. That's that's so great. Uh, one day I'm going to ask Brian this question. No, right? please don't. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I'm going to say it's because I work for Hemi. Don't ask any further yeah, questions. Right. <laughs> I'm taking out Hemi's garbage, which is, I mean, I would do that. By the way, yeah, if you're hiring, I will be your heartbeat. janitor. Um, okay, I'm sure he's got a great janitor. Okay. Uh, we're I do. Gonna His do name a is James. Con- he's terrific. Ah, damn it. All right. Okay, well, let's, let us know anything else. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to do a little context here. And and Professor, please tell me all of the different ways in which I'm incorrect here so that just we just want to get everyone on the same page so we can get into this thing. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about uh, asteroids today. Here's here, uh, brief, very brief and, and poorly put together history. Uh, for, for a long time, everybody thought the Earth was flat. Uh, a little bit later, we discovered, well, it turns out we're not the center of the solar system uh, and that we, in fact, uh, orbit the sun instead of vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, along the way, we discovered most of the rest of the planets in our system and some of the big moons in our neighborhood. Uh, and in 1801, uh, while drawing a star map, which I'm sure brought all the ladies to the yard, uh, <laughs> Giuseppe Piazzi, an astronomer and priest, uh, accidentally discovered the first and probably not coincidentally largest asteroid, uh, Ceres. Is that, is that how you say it, Professor? Ceres, right? Ceres, yeah. yeah. So uh, cut to 197 years later. Bruce Willis saves the whole world in Armageddon. We love talking about Armageddon. Um, yep. Uh, we had a matter of days before the big one hit. So we sent up this cantankerous crew of oil drillers, told them to drill to, I think it was 800 feet, drop a nuke and book it out of there. Um, we lost one guy, but otherwise everything is fine. <laughs> Problem good. solved. Um, here's the thing. We are hit with stuff from space all the time. Dust and sand, some bigger stuff. Almost all of it burns up. Some of it doesn't. About once a year, a uh, like a car-sized asteroid hits our atmosphere. But that burns up too before it can, uh, in, in movie magic, conveniently blow up a very specific landmark. <laughs> but Earth hasn't always been uh, so lucky, right? There are a load of ancient craters from the past uh, couple billion years. Earth is about four and a half billion years old, and 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 there's enough of these craters with a, a radius over fifty miles, right? Any one of those would turn off the lights. Night-night. The asteroid that, that probably at least helped kill off uh, m- my precious dinosaurs was, from what I understand, uh, anywhere from... Uh, I-, I think the, the crater is estimated from 100 to 180 miles wide. Is, is that correct? Right. And, and how big do we think the actual asteroid was? Um, probably about 10 kilometers. Okay, so, mm. so large. <laughs> so... Two billion years is a long time, though, right? So this, the solar system was a much crazier place back then. There was lots of stuff flying around, planets and moons being formed, etc. But still, at some point, something particularly nasty is going to come our way. And we need a plan to deal with it because um, the dinosaurs did not. And mm-hmm. that's their fault. But there's a bunch of different ideas. Popular culture has, <laughs> probably for worse, for better or worse, honed in on the blow shit up idea. There's some bad news recently, and Dr. Ramesh uh, has been in the news uh, discussing why that plan is not so great. 
So with that for some quick context, let's just let's let's talk about our question here, which is apparently we can't just blow up a killer asteroid. So KT, if you could just dash my dreams entirely. Um, <laughs> Please. Oh God, that sounds great. So I saw a simulation. Uh, I believe it was in uh, the Washington Post and linked a few other places. It was very 2D. It looked like a game of asteroids, um, but it was more or less terrifying. It's 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 like the asteroid equivalent of the T-1000 Terminator uh, healing up and coming back together in Terminator oh. 2, where you're like, oh, we can't actually kill this thing. So in it, we we blow up a lot, but not all the asteroid. And then, Brian, you got to watch this thing. I can't wait. Because of the gravity, all the pieces come back together. Oh, my God. So... Professor, what happened here? How did we how did we get to that point? Where, where did you stumble onto this? Destroy everything for me. <laughs> okay, so so actually, your history, your overall big picture was actually very good. Oh, I that's think very the, kind of you. The the uh, a really interesting thing about the asteroids is there are lots and lots of them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not very many of them are a real threat to the Earth. So, I think one thing to take off the table up front: we don't have an immediate problem. Uh, not something to worry about right now. Helpful. Um, but uh, really, our interest is in making sure that when we do have a problem, that we are aware of what we can do and then uh, work our way through addressing the issue. Let, let me go back to your, your primary question, this question of can you blow up an asteroid? Yes, you Please. can. Uh, the question is, will it stay blown up? Will it stay apart? Will it blow apart it broadly enough for you to do whatever you want? Um, there is a different question of should you blow up an asteroid? And I think the basic answer to that is no. Uh, mm. But what we were looking at in, in the, the uh, news item I think you were talking about, uh, it turns out that if you have an asteroid that's reasonably big and you blow it up, you hit it with something really hard and uh, you, you throw a lot of pieces out into the uh, space, but most of them are still in orbit and they will reaccumulate. And so you end up rebuilding your asteroid. Now it's covered with bits of rock, but it's been rebuilt because of the gravity. Um, and it takes, uh, in the case of the asteroid we were looking at, it takes only about six hours to rebuild itself. Oh, so, <laughs> that is so <laughs> wild. It doesn't take that long before you've got the same right. thing still coming at you, right? right. So, so, so that, 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 that was the, 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 the core uh, of, of that problem was really the gravity. Gravity is a monster. It, Never stops. It's had always we, had we had we just not asked that second part of the question before? Because it feels like that's the ten minutes of the movie Armageddon that like nobody has seen. Like the the last scene right. was whoops, it came back together. <laughs> uh, have we just forgotten about gravity and thinking about this? Or yeah, I, I, I think there are lots of things that the movie usefully forgets about, right? To, uh-huh. or to keep the dramatic uh, arc going. Sure. So, but but uh, the, the, the way to think about this is if your body, your initial asteroid is big enough, then gravity is simply the dominant force. If it's small enough, uh-huh. then essentially, yes, you can blow it up and the pieces will move apart. You, you, you want to distinguish between two different questions, though. This question of should you blow it up, right? right. Um, that's that's really an important question. And what, you said the, you think the answer is no. Could I, you talk to us about oh, that? Yeah, definitely. I would say the answer is no. So <laughs> let's 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 think through the problem from a bigger picture uh, viewpoint. So you have an incoming asteroid of some size, uh-huh. um, and really the concern you have is that it's going to impact the Earth. And if it impacts the Earth, then it has. Um, some consequences. Now, the consequences depend on how big it is and what it's made of and where it impacts. 
But broadly speaking, the argument is, uh, if you think about the thing that killed off, we think killed off the, the dinosaurs. Uh, so that comes in, hits the ground, generates a huge massive ejector. Uh, so lots of stuff that's thrown up into the air. Uh, some of it goes into orbit. It comes back into the atmosphere. And then the atmosphere itself is disrupted because you've got all of the stuff in it. Uh, and so that change in the global climate is part of what causes the problem. Uh, in in terms of extinctions, right? Mm-hmm. So 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 that that's one kind of event. Now, um, the real thing you want to do there is to avoid the impact in the first place. So so the way you think about the impact, Earth is moving along its orbit, the asteroids moving along its orbit, and the reason you have an impact is because there's a point in space and time where the two want to be in the same place. That's mm-hmm. that's the impact. So ideally, what you want to do is move the asteroid just a little bit so that it either goes ahead of the Earth or behind the Earth, and so it misses you entirely. That's all you want to do. You really don't want to do anything else. Uh, Imagine what you do instead is you blow it up, but it's still going in the same direction. All you're going to do is take all of that stuff and couple it into the Earth's atmosphere. Really not helping yourself very much there. (laughs) <laughs> right, that makes sense. So you'll you'll have some smaller pieces that that burn up, but now you've got, uh, you know, uh, I assume thousands of, right, of larger pieces. You, you could, uh, you could. So now, now, now the question is how big the thing is, right? So if if the thing right. that was coming in initially uh, was relatively small in the first place, well, okay, it'll cause some damage, but not too much. Uh, but the bigger it gets, the more stuff you're going to, the more mass you're going to couple into the atmosphere. And then you get this effect of you put all this energy into the atmosphere. You've got all this chemistry coming from whatever uh, molecules you've got, uh, whatever kinds of compounds you've got in the in the body coming in. And broadly speaking, humans are much more sensitive to what happens in the atmosphere than anything else. You know, we, we live on the skin of this planet, mm-hmm. and we are really sensitive to what happens around us. We've so, also ruined it, but that's a different. That's a diff- that's another argument. Yeah, whole different yeah. conversation. Anyways, so so that that's really the big thing. So generally, what you want to do is work really hard to move the asteroid just a little bit. All this effort you put into blowing it up doesn't really help you. Got it. Okay. That I mean that hmm. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. And you said you said that there's no uh, immediate threat, which is so wonderful to hear. It's great. I had a lot of <laughs> lot of plans for the next couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> Have we have we found uh you know some that 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 matter sort of uh, that, yeah, that could yeah. possibly yeah and uh, is it a lot are we tra- are they all being tracked? Not all of them are being tracked. So there's a Perfect. a neat little thing here where um, Congress actually mandated that NASA find all asteroids above a certain size that were potentially hazardous to the Earth. That's um, shocking. And uh, <laughs> since I think this was back in the early 90s or so, uh, when they actually uh, uh, asked NASA to do it, and since then uh, we've been doing it, I would say right now, if you let, let, let's look at it this way: so there are lots of different sizes of asteroids out there. Um, mm-hmm. You'll see some things that are, you know, like series. You're talking about several hundred kilometers across, several hundred miles across, uh, and then you'll get things that are really the size of your desk, uh, mm-hmm. or or even smaller than that, right? So the uh, size of your telephone. Uh, you get all of these things that are out there, and if they're big enough, uh, we tend to call them asteroids. Otherwise, we'd call them meteoroids, but they're all out there. Uh, mm. Most things are of a certain size, up to maybe the size of your desk and maybe a little bit bigger than that, the size of your typical room. Uh, the atmosphere is going to protect you from most of them. 
so they will tend to blow up in the atmosphere or burn up in the atmosphere. Um, and so, so you get things like the Chelyabinsk event, right? Where that was sort of a room-sized uh, asteroid. And yeah, that blew up in the atmosphere, caused a significant amount of damage, but it didn't actually get to making a large crater on the ground. Right. So those are the relatively small-sized ones. Um, then you'll get, so let's just think about asteroids sort of in the, uh, you know, 10 meter kind of size, so like a 30 foot kind of size, and then going up to a 100 meter kind of size, so 300 foot, let's say, and then a kilometer, uh, so let's say a mile, uh, and mm-hmm. then going up to 10 miles and, and up. Just think of that range of sizes. Essentially, if it's less than 10 meters, um, yep, it, it's likely to blow up in the atmosphere somewhere. It'll cause some damage. Uh, we, it's nice to uh, be able to respond to that. There are some other risks about that that I'll talk about, but typically those are airbus and they're not going to cause major devastation unless they are fairly large. Yeah. Go ahead. Can, let me ask one question, just just again, mm-hmm. trying to take a step back for to understand. We talk about there's so many different sizes and most of them burn up. Is there kind of a, is there like a threshold of, and I imagine it's more complicated than just size as in what the composition is yeah, and exactly. materials, yep, yep. but uh, is there, is there ish sort of a size that doesn't burn up sort of what is the minimum that we're tracking? I guess you said yeah. Congress has to track over a certain size. Right. I'd say if it's over a kilometer, it, it's going to get to the ground. Uh, okay. So if it's less than that, now it depends on what it's made of. Got um, it. And mm-hmm. if it's you know less than ten meters, it'll probably blow up in the atmosphere. Um, so gotcha. so it's it's you're, you're absolutely right. Though. What it's made of does matter. It particularly matters in the smaller sizes. When you get really big, how fast it's moving, and uh, how much mass it's, and you know momentum it's got with it, that's really what begins to dominate. Oh. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. So th- there are varying speeds at which these things could be flying at us. That's right. So typical uh. asteroids coming at the Earth are moving at between 15 and 20 kilometers per second. So a little <laughs> so over really, 10 miles really a second. slow. Yeah. Perfect. So they're really moving. Uh, wow. Now, uh, if you get to a comet coming at the Earth, that might be more like 50 kilometers per second. So comets come in much faster. Oh, perfect. Um, so, so I'm gonna, yeah. even though we have a bunch of science nerd listeners, I'm going to interrupt real quick and ask you if you can, for them, define the difference between an asteroid and a comet for us. Oh, sure. Um, all right. So, so asteroids, uh, and, and you know, the, the distinction, uh, there, there are some bodies that sort of sit in the boundary here, but let, let's talk about the big picture. The mm-hmm. asteroids are basically bodies that are typically, most of them are inside the orbit of Jupiter. They're mostly going between Jupiter and Mars. And then there are a few of them in orbits that are closer to the sun. So just a quick reminder on the solar system, the way it's built, right? You've got the sun, then going out from it, you've got Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and then Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the asteroids, we call them the, in the, the main belt asteroids, they're sitting between Jupiter and Mars in that area. Uh, then there are a few that are closer to us. Uh, we call them near-Earth objects, so things like Eros and oh, so yeah. forth, that are that have orbits that are somewhere close to the Earth's orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but asteroids are typically captured in this near vicinity. Um, comets, most of the comets that we see come in from much further out. So they are sitting way outside the orbit of even where Pluto is. Um, most of them are sitting way out. You know, So we, we don't see them at all until they begin Just- to get close. Just waiting. 
They're just waiting. <laughs> yeah. Stocking. Yeah. So there's something out there called Oots Cloud. Um, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but that's what I've always said Oots Cloud. Uh, we'll and this is way, way out there. Uh, that's where most of these comets are. And every once in a while, something disturbs them in that from their orbits there, and then they fall towards the sun. Uh, and so as you're coming in, you're coming in from so far out, they begin to really pick up speed as they come in. And typically, they'll come in on an orbit that either ends up swinging around the sun and then they disappear forever, or sometimes they swing around the sun and they get caught by something and then keep going around. So you get some comets that sort of go between the orbit of Jupiter. They sort of swing between Jupiter and the sun and go back and forth. Those are a little slow. If they if they're sort of comets around Jupiter and then coming back from there, they're not as fast as the ones that come in from way out. Gotcha. So that's uh, that's one distinction. The other difference is we think the comets are probably a little more porous, a little more snowy, a little more icy than most asteroids are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Icy, icy bullets of death. Great. Um, <laughs> so, so going, back, right. going back to your question, though, about what, yeah. we're, what we're likely to see. So I think if they are over a kilometer in size, we believe we probably found, I don't know, 95% of them. If they are sort of the size of the iceberg that uh, sunk, sank the Titanic, uh, we're probably looking at something that maybe we know about 30, 35% of them. Um, so there are quite a few out there that we still don't know about. Great, uh, great, great. And how big was, uh, there, I believe I believe it was a, I don't know if, what it was. Was it a meteor that exploded over Russia? Was that yeah. six, seven, five, six, seven years ago? Yeah, that's right, 2013. That was uh, the one that went, blew up over Chelyabinsk. Yeah, that was a yes. asteroid that blew up out there. Uh, some beautiful movies of that, right, from the dash cams that people had. Uh, right, that was incredible. Yeah. Um, so how big was that baby? So that's probably the size of a big room. I was going to say, it's not very clear exactly what size it was coming in. That's sort of our estimate based on gotcha. what, what we've observed, yeah. And uh, and sorry for a, a thousand questions, but this sure. is just life planning here on my part. So why did that one explode in the air as opposed to creating an impact? Yeah, so basically it wasn't big enough to do very much to get all the way through the atmosphere. The atmosphere is mm. really quite a protective thing for us. So uh, actually a good thing for your listeners to think about. Anytime you walk out and look up into the night sky and you look at the moon, right? Mm -hmm. And you see the man in the moon, or what mm -hmm. we call the man in the moon, those are the scars of asteroids hitting the moon. And so you, when, every time you look up, you are seeing the consequences of those kinds of impacts. If you look at Mars, it's covered with craters. Uh, you look at Mercury, it's covered with craters. Uh, Earth also has a number of them, but it's much harder to see them. And we've been protected a great deal by our atmosphere. So the atmosphere is really helpful. The thing that happened with Chelyabinsk, the atmosphere really stopped it. Right, yeah. right. And we've also, I, I, am, I, I have to imagine that there's a number that just disappear into the Pacific and things like that, both That's right. That's right. over that's, time and now. I mean, no one else has 70% yeah. water. Yeah, and, and, and you know, what, what uh, also happens is uh, back maybe 200 years ago, we rarely saw these things. But now we've got people living everywhere. Um, and we've got lots of people looking with various kinds of cameras all the time. And so mm -hmm. we observe many more. It doesn't mean that we're getting hit more often. It's just we're observing more. That's all right. right. Sure, sure. <clears throat> and again, I, I do think that context is important, which is like the solar system and, and the galaxy and universe in general were, were much was a much different place two billion years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, even 65 million years ago. Right. Um, I, I wonder if you saw, and, and then we'll get back to sort of planning... The news recently about the gentleman who doesn't even have a 
degree, I believe, in paleontology that thinks he found the three-hour window when the Yucatan, um, mm. the, the, the quote-unquote dinosaur killer hit. Wow. Um, he believes he has found the strip and thinks that it, it hit uh, hard enough and was hot enough that it sent up glass into the air and it came back down and that he has found this, he can identify it literally down to a three hour window. Um, I was listening, it was in the news and then radio lab who had done an episode on that event about six years ago, did a follow-up episode very recently. And we'll put that in the show notes. It's, it's fascinating, but they're kind of like, boy, there would have to be a hell of a lot of evidence for that to be right. (laughs) But it's possible, which is crazy. It's possible. I, I have not seen that news item. Uh, I must say, getting something within a three-hour window sounds really hard to, to be that that sort of Right, right, right. Yeah, right. it's such but, a tiny amount of time. Now, there are some arguments you can make based on what you observe uh, from an impact and when you observe them. But not having seen that, I shouldn't comment too much about it. Yeah, yeah and, and one of one of their sort of positions was, basically, this thing was so large, and I, I believe you said about 16 miles, so I, I think typically people say about the size of Manhattan and this, the King came in so fast and so hot. It was about, they believe about four times the, uh, uh, as hot as the surface of the sun and buried so deep and it sent up so much glass. There were people. And again, this is all very, and say controversial, but up for debate always. and, And I think probably always will be, uh, people have said, Oh, well, it sent up a bunch of stuff into the sky and then the small plants died off, large plants, smaller critters, and then the dinosaurs over time as they got sick and didn't have anything to eat. And this new argument is this was so hot and so fast and so large and sent up so much glass and changed the temperatures that basically everything was dead within a few hours as opposed to sort of weeks and months and things like that, which is, uh, I don't know, it seems seems crazy to me, but pretty wild. Yeah, that, that I have not seen that. It does sound a little faster than I would expect, but uh, right. yeah, not, not having seen the data, it's hard for me to go one way sure. or the other on that. Yeah, yeah, no dinosaurs left to tell us about right. it. Either, so. That's right, that's right. That, Wouldn't that's, that be great? Yeah. yeah. There's a good bit of signature of the event, right, that people are looking at. And so I, I guess that's the question. How do you piece together a story from the signature of things that are left on the earth. And you know, the earth has a a lot of activity on it. Sure. So so wait, isn't the signature called the KT boundary? Yeah, that's I love that. Uh, (laughs) Come on, man. You're holding back from us. Get out of here. It's like you were meant for this. It is called the KT boundary. And the first time I started doing work in this area, they said you've got the perfect name. Perfect name. But but now there's a there's a group of people who want to change the name of that that event. No way, man. They they do. They do. I I, I strongly object, but they want We're Team KT forever. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all right. We're gonna write a strongly worded letter. She needs the muscle. You let us know. (laughs) There we go. There we go. So, okay, so Dr. Mesh, recently uh, NASA and, uh, was it the ESA, one of our global counterparts, uh, <laughs> got together and, and ran a simulation. I think they called it, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe the model was like a dinosaur human killer, but still still bad enough to, to do some serious damage, yeah? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there, you know... Just, can you tell us about the whole yeah. thing? What were the assumptions? How did this come to be? How did it go? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are, no, are no. we okay? Now, this is a... Funny story for you. Um, so I was actually at that conference uh, when it started out, but I didn't stay till the end of it. So I don't know how it ended up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> smart. You got the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Start, things started to trend in one direction. He's like, you know what? I think I'm good. Yeah. So, 
So, so yeah, please, I, I'm us. sorry, I, I can't really tell you what 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 the end of that scenario was. Um, no, nope. I can I, use I, my I, imagination. I left it oh, after the first, very first day. <laughs> so, uh, what what so, how did this come together? Who was involved, and what were sort right. of the assumptions behind it? What so, happened so, the first so, day? So, so let, let's talk big picture first. So, this was uh, the Planetary Defense Conference. It was held in College Park, Maryland, uh, not very far from here, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of these things that's held every couple of years, I believe. This time it happened to be close to D.C., so that also made it a little easier for uh, folks to come by. There were a number of countries represented, uh, lots of talks. It went over five days from Monday through Friday. Some talks were as short as, I don't know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, and some went on 18 minutes or so. So all relatively small talks. Yeah. Um, but Fundamentally, there were people there from most of the space agencies uh, from uh, various countries around the world. I think there are something like 18 countries now that have some kind of a space agency, uh, at the very least, maybe a satellite up there that they, they use. Um, mm-hmm. Some, of course, are much larger than others. So NASA is uh, the big gorilla. Uh, the European Space Agency is uh, very large. Of course, the Russians and uh, the Japanese have fairly large programs, the Chinese do now. So all of those folks were represented in various ways. So NASA has something called the Planetary Defense Office. There's a Mm -hmm. Planetary Defense Coordination Office um, that uh, has some funding to to go uh, to to work in these directions. Mm -hmm. Um, I... You know, my own feeling is it would be good if they had much more money than they do. But I was going to say, when you say <laughs> some, some funding, <laughs> it makes me feel like, boy, God, that could be a, there could cool. be a lot more mm. emphasis there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got me on that. So, 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 so this uh, planetary defense coordination office is uh, its intent is to do a couple of different things. Uh, one is, of course, to understand what's likely to be uh, the concern coming down. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the other side of it is to ensure that you have a process in place so that if there is an event, uh, then you know how to respond to it. I remember the very first time people ran scenarios like this, you'd end up in situations like nobody knew who to call, right? And there wasn't a particular person who might, a particular group that would go to the president and say, this is coming up. Um, so th- there were a variety of lines of communication that were not in place originally. Uh, but this uh, Defense Coordination Office, their job is to make sure that all of those things are in place to really look at the detection of these potentially hazardous objects, so make sure that we know what fraction of them are nearby, being able to track them, characterize them in some way, and sort of know what their sizes are, what they might be made about, you know, made of, what their risks might be, and mm-hmm. then figure out what's a communication process for making sure that that information goes out to the public, can be coordinated inside the U.S. government. How do you coordinate with other countries? Because if you have an event like this, it's going to be a global risk. It's not, not never likely to be just a national risk. It'll be a global issue. So, mm-hmm. so all of that coordination. So there is a, a group now that focuses on that. I think they do it really well. The Europeans also have a planetary defense uh, officer. I think they spell it with a C rather than an S, and we go with an S on the defense. But otherwise, oh, of course, yes, yes, of course uh-huh. they do. Uh-huh. Otherwise, the idea is the same. So I, I was really impressed with how organized people were, how much they were thinking through these processes. Uh, and the idea at every one of these conferences is that um, somebody creates a scenario uh, and then updates that scenario every day of the meeting with some new information. and you see how the different groups would respond to that. So sort of the classic problem might be, uh, you know, at some point you observe that a body is coming in. Usually the first time you, you, you think that something's coming in, it's really dim and faint and far away. Uh, it's hard to get very much information about it. 
Uh, it's hard to be sure what direction it's moving. You don't really have a good sense of the orbit. So then you have to start getting people to start looking at it, getting a handle on what the orbit is, what might it be made of, uh, how big might it be, and all of that takes time. So so just getting all of that in place, uh, I think I think is a big challenge. And I, I do my my feeling is that the community has gotten much better at coordinating these activities. And these uh, challenge cases are a good way to test them out and, and see what might happen. In some sense, what you'd like to know is what is the risk of an actual impact. You assess that risk and you try to update that risk fairly often. Because, you know, one general way of saying this, and I, I guess I should start by making sure that all of your listeners are aware, uh, this is not a current risk. We're not really talking about a problem that we have right now. It's not a mm -hmm. question of warning. It's none of that. Mm -hmm. This is just more a question of being aware of what's out there. Sure. Would, would we sure. have a lot of notice? In general, if they're big ones, yes. Yeah. Uh, what's we, a lot? Because it might be really different for you than Brian. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, so for, for most of the things that are likely to be significant risks over a kilometer in size, we would know, right. uh, you know, tens of years to hundreds of years ahead, maybe even longer than that. Oh, man, oh my so God, much different than Armageddon. That. Holy cow. So, oh, that's great. So, so there, there's time. The little Tens ones. of years. But, but I believe, and not to cut to the end, mm -hmm. from what I understand, the, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, one of probably the most logical solutions is to nudge one of these things in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would take us tens of years yep. to actually Figure. get our, we, we can't just send up a, Right. A, we don't have a space shuttle anymore, right. and uh, an Apollo capsule isn't going to shove this out of the way. So it would take us at least a decade, from what I understand, to get our shit together to do a project like that. Wow. Um, Is that correct? Well, so so two different things. In order to get up there and actually try to deflect something wouldn't take you that long. But in order for the deflection to be effective, yeah, you need time. So if you think of it this way. If it's relatively close to you and you want to move it out of the way, you have to give it a big kick to move it, right? Right, uh, and so that—that's a lot of energy to give something, a lot of momentum to give something. Whereas, mm -hmm. if you have a long time, if let's say you can nudge it fifty years out from when it is likely to be a threat, well, you have fifty years for the the nudge that you gave it to take effect. So you can nudge it just right. a little bit. And so, so it's not a question of how fast can you get up there, but if you have enough advance notice, then you don't have to move it very much to do what you need to do. And and the but the converse of that is also if we have say fifty years, mm -hmm. uh, which sounds like uh, sort of the median. Uh, if we have fifty years, we can't use forty of those to plan and then send something up. It sounds like <laughs> that, that, that's definitely true. Yeah, you once once you know you have a significant risk, then you have to start working on what you want to do uh, in response. And I wouldn't say fifty years is the median. We don't really. It's the science of small no, the statistics of small numbers. There are none of them that are. At, we are at risk for, for the next 100 years or so. The wow. question is partly how well do we know their orbits, and we keep getting better at these, right? We keep refining uh, our understanding of their orbits. So, so that, that's the issue. But we have no major risk coming up in the near term. So it sounds like these, these first of all, these conferences and simulations are both growing in frequency, but also in how successful they are at, at coming together. And it, it does seem like it's, it's both the, well, it seems like the latter goal is what do we actually do about this specific scenario? Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. almost the former is it's almost like, you know, playing a, a, a scrimmage soccer game. 
you know, we're not just playing the scrimmage. We've got to figure out, well, who's on the team and before that, who picks the team and who's the coach and things like that. And it seems, it sounds like you feel like, which is just basically how I'm basing how I feel that things are going trending better in that direction. There's a communication system. There's a process. I think so. I think so. I think things are definitely better now. And I think people, the the awareness is really important um, for each government to have some idea of how it would respond. Who would you talk to? Who has the information? Where do you get the information from? I think all of that is developing. So I'm I'm really pleased with where that's going. Now, uh, you you know, there is a mission that's going to try out one of these um, technologies. I heard a little bit about that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. It's called the DART mission, the double asteroid redirection test. It's actually going to be launched a couple of years from now. So this is really sort of a technology demonstration. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea is, um, so so maybe let me back up for a minute. So when you want to move an asteroid, there are basically three ways you can move it. We're not talking about blowing it up, just move it. So one way to move it is to do what you might call a standoff nuclear blast. So uh, you have set off a nuclear explosion, not in the asteroid, not on the asteroid, but off at some distance from the asteroid. And then that has, essentially, you couple to the surface of the asteroid, you generate x-rays or a bunch of other things, and you can push the asteroid a little bit with that. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is with something called a gravity tractor. That is, you take another body, and you bring it around the asteroid, and then you move, you go in orbit around the asteroid. And effectively, it's like shifting the center of mass, and so slowly you can move the asteroid that way. Hmm. Uh, and the third way is called a kinetic impactor. So you take something and you hit it. And you're not hitting it with the intention of blowing it up, but you're hitting it with the intention of moving it. And so so that last technology, the kinetic impactor, is what is being tested out in this uh, DART mission. So if I remember right, it goes up in something like um, uh, June or July of 2021 and will actually make impact in uh, November, December of 2021. Um, Interesting. So it's a, it's a, a full-scale test. I mean, so this thing has all been designed and people are setting up to, to launch and uh, sure. there's, there's a whole uh, sequence of groups that are trying to work on this. So it's really drawn by NASA. It's uh, part of the planetary defense program. Um, it's uh, managed actually being built at the Hopkins Applied Physics Lab or just down the street from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. It's got some really cool technology on it, but fundamentally what it's going to do is move towards a, a double asteroid system. So a lot of asteroids out there are what we call binaries. They have one body spinning around the other. Uh, this is one of those. The asteroid is called Didymos, D-I-D-Y-M-O-S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a big asteroid and then a little one. Uh, the little one is the moon. It's called Didymos B. A number of us in the business call it Diddy Moon, but the official name is Didymos B. <laughs> <laughs> but, I love inside jokes. That's so good. <laughs> but, but the idea is that the uh, mission will essentially launch an impactor. Or the mission itself is an impactor that will hit this moon. Um, and what we can do is watch the orbit of the moon around the asteroid of this of Didymos B, right? The asteroid's moon around the main asteroid. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should be able to see that orbit change because we hit it. And we can measure how much that orbit changed. And so that way we can measure how much of an impact, of an effect we had through this impact. Because gotcha. essentially we're trying to change the momentum. Um, right. And the idea is, in this case, we can actually test the whole thing out. We're going to hit it at something like uh, 6.5 kilometers per second. So pretty mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. So we're moving with a mass of, I don't know, it's about 600 kilograms, slightly less than 600 kilograms, something like that. And so this this entire thing is set up now. Um, it, there is a, 
a mission that we hope will go along with it, the sort of a little CubeSat that will be launched along with the primary mission. The mm -hmm. CubeSat's actually being designed and built by the Italians. And the idea is that that will be standing off to the side while this thing hits and can give us some imagery of the actual event. Um, and then there's, uh, with any luck, there'll be a follow-up mission that uh, the Europeans will send up called HERO that mm -hmm. will go there much later and then look at the crater that was formed and so forth. So Fascinating. Yeah, I think this so, is going to be really good. Uh, yeah, it certainly helps to have some actual tangible, yeah. tangible uh, results. Mm -hmm. So it, it, good news is, is, as you said, things are coming together uh, better and more efficiently and more robustly. It doesn't seem like at least entirely, it's a case of, well, we need to see what we're dealing with before we do anything. We do have some systems in place, which yep. is great. Are, are there things, uh, on the, I guess, on the science side that we can plan for that will apply to most uh, or many, if not all, uh, asteroids of sizes and speed and speeds and timelines on the science side? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think uh, one of our big questions is what happens during the impact, you know, just simulating the impact event itself. Mm -hmm. This turns out to be really hard to do. It's one of the things I do for a living. And the, the issue is this. Most experiments we do in the lab, these are lab scale. These are the kinds of things I can hold in my hand and then I shoot at it. Um, mm -hmm. But now we're going to go up to an asteroid and this thing is, you know, the, the size of a building or bigger. Um, and how do we know that what happens in the lab will apply to what happens on that asteroid. Um, and the answer is, uh, well, we do experiments like the DART mission, uh, and then we have to do simulations and try to predict what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. that's what we do. And I think a real investment in that science uh, is something that a lot of countries are thinking about or working on. Because part of the problem, like you said uh, somewhat uh, when we began this uh, show, is really the question of what are the asteroids made of, you know? Mm. And we don't really have a good sense of that. So part of well, something that would be really useful for us is to get pieces of asteroids back. There are a couple of mm -hmm. missions that are doing that right now. One is Hayabusa 2 at the asteroid mm -hmm. Ryugu, and the other is Osiris-Rex at Bennu. Both of those are going to come back with pieces. We're going to be able to look at that. We'll get a better sense then of what the asteroids are like, and then be able to use that to estimate uh, what's going to happen when we impact them. So, so there's, there's sort of this uh, interesting place in the field where you tend to think every asteroid out there has been hit so many times uh, over the eons, right, that it's been fractured many times and then it's pulled back together and held by gravity. Mm -hmm. The question is, how strong is that thing? If it, is it just a collection of dust that's being held together? Or, that would be great. Yeah, that would be easy to move, maybe, maybe, but maybe not. Right? When you try moving, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe sure. it just goes poof. The, the other side of it is uh, how how uh, consistent are these things? You know, are we likely to find most of them are one way and a few are solid rock? Uh, right. Are most of them basaltic versus uh, other types? So, so we have some sense of that using spectral observation. Basically, you can look at them with telescopes and say a good bit. But there's a lot that you really can't get until you get a piece of it or until you actually hit something. So I think that science is the really important stuff. Uh, uh, and I think NASA's uh, DART mission, that will be the first mission to actually do planetary defense, the first mission to actually measure the asteroid deflection um, and really give us a close-up view of a binary system. So I'm hopeful for a great deal yeah, of that mission. That's yeah, a yeah, pretty big deal. is probably the word I would use as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, KT, it seems like, you know, for the most part, we're pretty uh, uh, prepared. And we have a good grip, uh, grip on this, but are there, you know, there must be some some 
obstacles, some things that are uh, frustrating uh, to you and and your and scientists. Can you talk about those? Sure. Um, Process wise or science wise, besides what we just don't know. Yeah. So, well, yeah, there's obviously things we don't know, things that are coming from the sunward side, things that are comets, things like that. Um, I would say, broadly speaking, we really need to be investing a little bit more in detection of things and characterizing them when they're far away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's, that's an area where we need to invest more effort generally. Uh, we're certainly investing more than we were 20 years ago, but um, our understanding of the risk has gotten bigger, and so we need to be more aware of it. Um, so I think that's one area. Uh, there's another, which is just communication. So if you have something like Chelyabinsk and it's happening, you know that, mm-hmm. that happened suddenly. We didn't know it was going to happen. Uh, we were actually looking at something else when that thing came in. And uh, the, just ensuring that there's enough communication among governments that nobody sees something like that as a threat, that, that, that kind of thing is important too. Uh, and that was the, just because that was too small, right? That's right. That was just too small. Uh, and well, it was coming from the sunward side. That was one reason it was hard to see. But the, I, I think this, this whole business of doing the science about the impact event and the, the, the fragmentation process and being able to communicate risk to people and to governments, I think that's, that's a really important mm-hmm. place. And so that, that's an area I'd like to see more investment of people. It's not just money. It's people actually deciding, you know, this is important for us to understand. Sure. We, we are, as a, as a civilization, much more exposed than we were 200 years ago because we cover much more of the globe. Um, you know, our well, risk we're using such interconnected systems. You know, we That's talk right. about what, right. what a, you know, we, there are sun, solar flares all the time, but mm-hmm. a real, uh, you know, coronal uh, injection, what mm-hmm. that would do to our electric grid and GPS mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. We, we've become so reliant on these amazing technologies that are connected and That's right. That's right. all of that, but boy, we could be in the dark ages yeah. real fast. <laughs> I mean, I guess so on that topic, before we move into sort of action steps here, what, mm-hmm. you talk about you, we wish we had more people that cared and could put more effort into it. Mm-hmm. There are, and this is a lot of what we talk about, we also try to cover good news things, mm-hmm. uh, but there are a lot of figurative and, and literal fires to, to put out these days. Mm-hmm. And, and so I can empathize with folks feeling like, look, KT said there's no, there, there's no current killer asteroid coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we just put that on the back burner while we save uh, democracy and sea level rise mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. urban heat and bad water and bad air, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely see both sides of that. At the same time, uh, we would really feel like assholes if all of a sudden we just were not prepared for this. But mm-hmm. um, how many people, you, you say you'd like more people involved in a more of a focus. How many people like you and like, you know, sort of the NASA Planetary Defense and European Space Agency, are there actually actively working on this stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, hard to get really good numbers, but I'd say a couple of thousand, a few thousand the question of how active, you know, some people might be doing it uh, occasionally and others focused on this. So a couple of thousand, let's say. Your point about risk, I think, is a really important one. You know, there, we've got a variety of things that we ought to be worrying about as a civilization. Uh, some of them are near term. Uh, some of them are long term issues that, uh, you know, you have to do things in the near term to take care of the long term. And some of them are the kinds of issues where, you guys remember how people talk about risk, right? There's sort of the probability mm-hmm. of an event, and then there's the consequences of the event happening. And you take the product mm-hmm. of those two, and that's a really good measure of risk. So this business with asteroids, for instance, it's a very low probability event. But mm-hmm. 
If it does happen, it's a very high consequence of that. And that's why the risk is high. And, and so for those kinds of things, what you really need is an in-depth study so that you understand what that risk is. You can categorize it, be able to respond quickly when you need to. That, that's the way in which I would look at this. Sure. Uh, if, you, if you try to do it only when the event shows up, you're not going to have enough time to respond. Now, that's true of a lot yeah. of other major risks that we have, too, uh, climate change being one of them. But yeah. Sure. Yeah, we've done it. That's uh, another one we've done a poor job on. It would be great if one of these things went well. <laughs> um, so let's get into sort of more action-oriented stuff here, just mm-hmm. to, to try to close this out. How can our listeners become better and more, I guess, frequently informed, knowing nothing is coming, we've said that a hundred <laughs> times, about sort of our progress and our options without turning into conspiracy nuts with, with tinfoil on their hats here. Are, are there specific resources or places to pay attention to? I mean, obviously, we'll talk about it whenever uh, there's something pertinent like the mm-hmm. conference, but mm-hmm. I'm curious if there's more firsthand knowledge. Well, yeah, so there's a lot that's uh, really managed by the Planetary Defense Coordination Office that NASA has. I think that's a really good place to go. A uh, number of labs that spend a significant effort on this kind of thing. Uh, the Hop- Johns Hopkins APL, the Applied Physics Lab is one. JPL is another. Um, and so there are a number of websites like that that you could go to uh, that will give you current information. NASA runs a neat little website that ha- shows all the current uh, NEOs that are out there. You can go look at that. Uh, mm-hmm. Near Earth objects, that is. So there, I think there's a lot of information that comes through the science community uh, that is designed to be consumed by the public. And I think that's certainly the first place I'd go for that. I do, uh, from my experience, as a little bit, uh, it, it, it's easy for some in the media to move very quickly towards trying to sensationalize threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I'm I'm very cautious about this. I'd much rather people just think of this in terms of awareness of sure. you know potential risk rather than think in terms of threats per se. Um, sure. So so yeah, I, I think NASA is uh, the place to start on these. Uh, NASA, APL, JPL. That's what I'd go. Okay, great, awesome, excellent. <clears throat> um, so I sort of mentioned it, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning of this conversation. But you know, our goal here is to provide uh, specific action steps that our listeners can take to support you uh, and what you do uh, with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So let's just get into that a little bit. What, how can our listeners support you with, with their voice? What are the things they should be, I guess, and we like, again, action-oriented questions are, we find helpful. What are the things they should be asking, for instance, of their representatives? Right. So, so I would say, uh, well, f- first let me say something that would back up a little bit from their voice. I, I just like Please. to see people in the, I, I think people should be more engaged with the world around them, just in yeah. terms of observing what's there. You know, even, even at the very simple level of getting out there in the night and looking up and just, just see, just look at the stars and see uh, what they're like, just get, get a feel for the, the environment we live in. Because that is the environment we live in. There is a space environment, and that, that's that's what we're thinking about. The the question of it, it ought to be on everybody's bucket list to see the Milky Way, right? At least once. Mm-hmm. So I think that gives you a sense of perspective about the things that we do uh, on Earth. So that's one side. I'm going to the voice question. I, 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 I yeah, uh, I guess uh, it's, it's okay for us to be opinionated on this kind of show, I suppose. 
Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> so, so I, I guess my sense is I'd really like to see uh, folks talk a little bit more to their representatives about the need to support uh, the fundamental side of science. I, I think, uh, by and large, the American public in particular is very comfortable with the idea that technology is important and it has an impact and so forth. And it, and it absolutely does. But there's a fundamental side to this where we have to understand the basics. Sometimes the output of that kind of science takes a long time before it gets to technology. You know, it might be 20 years, 30 years out. But it's really important to do that. You know, when uh, there's a really nice line in um, uh, that movie about the, the Higgs boson. I forgot the name of the, the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a really nice line in that where, where somebody asks uh, the astronomer, so why are you looking at this? And he points out that, you know, when radio waves were first invented, uh, were first discovered, they weren't called radio waves because nobody had radios, right? (laughs) So (laughs) so I I think there's a lot that you do in the basic sciences that has big impact down the line. And I'd like to see people ask their representatives to continue to support the basic science. That's really what keeps us ahead of everything else. So, you know, you could think of it in terms of national competition. That's certainly true. But even as humanity, in terms of the impacts we're having on the world, mm-hmm. keeping us ahead of that, I think that basic science investment is really important. And, you know, voting, uh, vote where your heart is. I think that's the way to do it. So, so I guess that ties into anything specific they should do with their dollar besides pay their taxes and then tell their representatives what to do with it. Are there any private groups or NGOs or labs or anything like that where they can uh, send their hard-earned money, things like that? Yeah, um, well, I'd certainly like it if people wanted to support my institute, but that would be a little <laughs> parochial. I, I guess the thing I would say, uh, I, I really believe in supporting young people who try to pick up science and who are interested mm-hmm. in it. So I'd really invest in your school systems and the folks who really look at teaching the teaching of science, getting that across. Um, we seem to be moving a little bit away from it in terms of the broad populace. I think there are... We, we, we're becoming too selective there, and we need a broader uh, willingness to engage on the science front. So that's where I'd invest in, in your local school system, in your local library, on the science end of things. I love that. And yeah, it, uh, we are moving away from those things, and it is yeah. pr- pretty, pretty frustrating. Yeah. Uh, doctor, this has been incredible. Well, yeah, we're uh, we're going to bring this thing home here, uh, I- if you're good with that. We have sort of a lightning round. Not really mm-hmm. a lightning round. Uh, just the last few questions here uh, to, to bring it home. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ramesh, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Ooh, that's a tough First time in my life. Huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Actually, something that sticks out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anything. Yeah, I, I guess really when I got into this whole business of uh, trying to do things with my own hands. So I was build, trying to do experiments when I was starting out. As a graduate student, you know, I, I, I grew up as a person who could do math, but I could never build anything. And then the first time when I realized that you could actually put things together and make something happen, I remember at that time I was working with a laser and the laser didn't work. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment in time when I walked through all the pieces and I realized that, you know, all those equations meant something and mm-hmm. every norm I turned was affecting it. And, and I could actually make something happen. That, that to me was big. I, I got realization that uh, there are these fundamentals that come together and you can build really effective technology. For me, that was a big one because I'm, I'm very much a tech buff. Sure, sure. That's awesome. 
Professor, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Six months. Six. Um, well, so, so maybe, I guess for me, really, that is my students, my graduate students. These are the folks that, uh, you know, we get to talk about things, but the grad students do all the work. That, that's how life is in an American university. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I get a chance to talk about what they've done. Uh, but, you know, for instance, the, the work you were talking about in the media, that was my graduate student, Charles Almeir. I've had a number of these students who graduated, uh, got that, that has got their PhDs in the last uh, year or so. Uh, I, I, I think they have had a big impact on where we are. Charles is a good example. Um, without that uh, simulation capability that he developed, we'd never have realized how important that gravitational piece was. Sure, sure. It's amazing how something like that can paint a, yeah. paint a picture. KT, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Ah, I take my telescope out and I go look at the stars. Wow. Good answer. Uh, thought about getting my, uh, getting my kids a starter telescope here. So yeah, we, yeah. we, we don't see to. a lot in, uh, the, in the bowels of Los Angeles. Uh, just a little bit of light pollution here. Uh, <laughs> but when our, our summers on the East coast provide us a little more of a clear sky. So I'm, I, 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 yes, just to see them and they love, you know, the space documentaries and planet earth and all those things. So I would, you know, to give them that real experience, I think would be pretty exciting. A couple of years ago was the first time I ever saw the moon through a telescope. And the oh. moon, like, the moon is my favorite thing maybe in mind, the right? world. Yeah. And just yeah. with the naked eye and seeing it in a telescope, I mean, I was like, uh, just, you know, in shock. The yeah. new Apollo yeah. 11 documentary is pretty tremendous for yeah. that. I took my kid to see that in the theater. And, and you realize, like, oh, we've seen Apollo 13 and First Man that came out this year is right. tremendous. But seeing the actual footage from that, you know, from, from, from zero days, their landing was just. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Wow. Um, <clears throat> all right. And uh, how do you consume the news? Oh, I'm almost entirely online. I'm basically, yeah. um, you know, use apps, I guess. Uh, but I'm basically, a, I, I look at newspapers online. That's really the way I get my news. I'm not much of a social media person. But yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good idea for everyone <laughs> involved. Uh, KT, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what would that book be? Okay. We're going to add it to our list. Oh, you will. You will. You'll actually add it to a list that we have. I have an actual list of books uh, that uh, any of our listeners can uh, choose uh, off of our uh, Amazon list uh, uh, and send right to the White House. (laughs) We've gotten quite the the range. So uh, anything. That's cool. Well, I would say uh, something that for every president, uh, certainly for this one, uh, there's a really nice book by uh, this woman named Jill Lepore. It's called These Truths. It's sort of a history of the United States. Um, and it's beautifully written. And it's, it's a fun fun read and, and really deep. So that's what I'd recommend. These Truths. Awesome. Yeah. Good one. Amazing. Uh, no, you just said you're not a big social media guy. Is is there anywhere for our listeners to follow you and your, your institute online? Just yeah. to kind of keep up with all the fun shit you're doing? Right. The the Institute is on Twitter and Facebook and all of that. Um, so that that really would be the best way to do it. Uh, you can follow at Hemi uh, on all of those. Okay. Um, I myself, I'm really not much of a social media person. I probably should be. <laughs> uh, honestly, I would so much rather you spend your time doing what you're doing than, than, to, <laughs> than for you to be on Twitter. Oh, uh, KT lost another day to a Twitter hole. That would be... <laughs> Not helpful for mankind. Um, Professor, we just want to say thank you so much for your time today and for all that you do. Uh, It just sounds 
super fun and awesome and constructive and practical and inspirational and all of those things. So thank you. Wow. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And if uh, you ever want to visit Hemi, please come on by. We, we have a lot of fun showing yeah. people what we do. So. <laughs> oh, we, I, I, yeah. We, that might happen in the next few months here. That sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> sounds incredible. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at important, not imp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. <laughs>